This talk was given by Shyla Catherine. For more information and a schedule of her events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. Tonight's topic is the recollection of the Sangha. And I'd like to speak about a practice called Sangha Nusati. Just to define the term Sangha, if that's an unfamiliar term for you, it, it, it literally means congregation, community, gathering. There are actually some differences of opinion regarding the proper use of this term, Sangha. It's a term from the Pali language, which is the ancient language that we receive the teachings of the Buddha in. And this term Sangha, one of the questions is, is it appropriate to use it for groups of lay people who practice together? Or is it reserved only for the ordained Sangha, the monastic community? In Asia, you would mostly only hear it used to refer to monastics. Is it a term that can be used for people of practitioners of any stage of awakening and wisdom? If you just come to a be- as a beginning meditator, are you part of the Sangha? If you just ordain, but haven't practiced much, are you part of the Sangha? Or does it refer to, to only people who have attained some degree of commitment or faith or wisdom or awakening? enlightenment. Certainly nobody thinks that it means that the only sangha is the sangha of fully enlightened beings, like arhats, you know, the fully awakened ones. It would be a very, very tiny little sangha. (laughs) But at what point does one draw the line? And in some contexts, we find the term sangha to refer to the, those people who have already established right view, who are basically on the path in such a way with such confirmed confidence that it could be said it is a sangha of awakened ones because it is a sangha of people who are deeply committed to the path of awakening and have had at least some glimpse of awakening themselves, some deep, profound insight. And this kind of insight, which would classically be called the first stage of awakening, can certainly be experienced by both lay and ordained practitioners. So like all words, the context is really important for the understanding of the term, to understand what is meant by it. We have to consider the context that we find it in. So I looked it up, though, in the dictionary, in the Pali English Dictionary. And it says, Sangha is the name for the community of Buddhist monks. That was one definition. Also, as the third of the three gems and, as, and the three refuges, 
which is the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, it applies to the Arya Sangha, the community of the Four Noble Ones, the Awakened Ones, which means the stream winner, the once returner, the non-returner, and the Arahant. So even in the dictionary definition, we find two possible readings of this term Sangha. Personally, I'm a little reluctant to use the term Sangha to apply to any institutional form. Although we commonly call our gathering together a gathering of Sangha, the Insight Meditation Sangha, we're attending the evening sitting and sometimes we say we're going to Sangha, we're going to meditate in community. But I'm a little reluctant to apply the term to an institutional form like a nonprofit organization or to any kind of organization, just as much as I'm personally reluctant to use the term to apply it to monastics. It's also an institutional form. No different in my mind. Well, there's differences, but basically it's an institutional form in the same way as a lay community is. But this has become quite common usage is to refer to the Sangha as, you know, we come to Tuesday night Sangha. I tend to use the term a bit sparingly, and in that way I hope that it retains some of its potency as a refuge in our practice, as a place of shelter and trust, but also as a meditation object. Because if I associate Sangha just with a social institution or a group of individuals. It's hard to kind of take refuge in that, right? People are difficult. (laughs) They're not always reliable. They're not always trustworthy. Most of the time we're here on Tuesday night. But, you know, we had to cancel a time recently. You know, things are when, when when the church needed the place for the beginning of Lent. There's different things that shift and change. When I think of a refuge, I think of something that is deeply trustworthy. When we work with the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha as meditation instructions, as a recollection and a reflection, um, we find an instruction in the Visuddhimagga that says, one who wants to develop the recollection of the community should go into a solitary retreat and recollect the special qualities of the community of noble ones as follows. And then it goes through a list of the special qualities. I find this little instruction interesting because it's telling us that when we reflect on the community, we can do it in isolation. Isn't that bizarre? Well, I actually think we can reflect on the Sangha both in community and in solitude. In fact, I think in some way we do that every time we come to this gathering and we are drawn back because we recognize the power of practicing together. We recognize the value that comes from being with other people who are trying to develop the mind, being with other people who are trying to counter the forces of greed, hate, and delusion in their lives and in the world. 
And that's a powerful gathering to be with other people who share this profound interest enough to try to transform the seeds, the roots of greed, hate, and delusion within our minds. And so just by walking in this room together on a Tuesday night, we give support to a very profound undertaking, a very profound uh, potential. But I find it interesting that it's presented as a meditation subject. So we can close our eyes, ignore other people, (laughs) and recollect on the power of community. At the time of the Buddha, this recollection of Sangha very likely arose out of a custom of praise. And there would be a custom of praising, of praising the virtues Sometimes they would praise the virtues of the Buddha, but sometimes they would praise the virtues of the community. When we think about and when we reflect on virtues, then it uplifts the mind and it reinforces those virtues. And as such, when the mind focuses on something that is uplifting and wholesome, then it can become a very valuable meditation object that has been cultivated throughout the history of Buddhism. The translation that I gave you on those little slips of paper of these qualities that we recollect, I gave you two translations. The first one says, The community of the Blessed One's disciples has entered on the good way. The community of the Blessed One's disciples has entered on the straight way. The community of the Blessed One's disciples has entered on the true way. The community of the Blessed One's disciples has entered on the proper way. That is to say, the four pairs of persons, the eight persons, this community of the Blessed One's disciples is fit for gifts, fit for hospitality, fit for offerings, fit for reverential salutation as an incomparable field of merit for the world. The second translation is not so different, except instead of the community of the blessed ones, it says the order of the exalted ones. And instead of entered on the good way, it says is practicing well. And instead of the straight way, there's upright conduct or the right way instead of the true way. Very slight alterations and different choices of words. But the meaning, I think, comes across. In Pali, those terms are supatipano bhagavato sawakasanko. Ujupatipano Bhagavato Sawakasanko. Nayapatipano Bhagavato Sawakasanko. Samichipatipano Bhagavato Sawakasanko. Yadidam Chatari Purisa Yugani Atta Purisa Pugala. Esa Bhagavato Sawakasanko. Ahunayo Pahunayo. Dakinayo Anjali Karaniyo Anutaram Punyaketam Lokasati. This would be chanted 
every day in the monasteries in Thailand. And some of you might be familiar with these terms. Whether you know them or not, the chant might have a vague familiarity if you've ever visited Thai monasteries because it's a very common one. They would usually routinely chant the recollection of the Buddha and the Dhamma and this one for the Sangha before or after or each teaching or in conjunction with the meditation sessions. So basically I want to speak a little bit about what each of these reflections mean because when we look at them in English, it's not really so clear. I mean, what do you think is really the difference between the good way, the straight way, the true way, the proper way? Eh, You know, how is that interpreted? But don't worry. The Buddhist tradition has a long history of commentary. So there were many years where they were able to think of good responses to what each of those mean (laughs) and to write it down for us so that we have a commentarial explanation of what each of these reflections is pointing to. And so when we reflect on supatipano, entering on the good way or practicing well, it basically means a way of practice that is irreversible, that's in conformity with the truth, that has no opposition, that is regulated by the Dhamma, that conforms to the teachings, that is consistent with the teachings of the Buddha. And so one enters on a practice that basically leads to awakening. When we look at Ujjupatipano entering on the straight way or of upright conduct, we're looking at a community of people who possess in common both right view and virtue. And this creates a way that is straight, that goes straight, that goes direct to awakening. It's not crooked, it's not twisted, it's not a torturous path. It's also considered the middle way, which is a way that avoids the extremes of self-indulgence and self-mortification. It gives us a straight and direct way of abandoning the faults of bodily and verbal crookedness, or really, these words are right from the Visuddhimagga, crookedness and, I love this one, warpedness. I didn't even know that was an English word. Warpedness. The the kinds of distortions of practice and view, the kinds of distortions that can happen where we might justify a wrong behavior or think that it's okay or spiritual. But this community is said to have a straight way, to have a clear way, so that the conduct and the view the liberating action and the understanding go to weak awakening, go to freedom, end the causes of suffering. Nayapatipano refers to the true way or the right path. And this is true or right because it is aimed at awakening. It is leading to nibbana. It is leading to release, to letting go. Samichipatipano, this proper way or practicing correctly, refers to the correct path, which refers to the eightfold path. 
So it's not a one-fold path. It's not only doing samadhi practice. It's not only doing mindfulness practice. It's a path that includes right action, right speech, right livelihood. It's a practice that's based upon right understanding, includes right intention, right thought. So it's a complete and comprehensive path that is directed towards awakening that leads to the ending of suffering. And with the clarity of training, with a proper understanding, this makes the community worthy of respect. Yadidam just means that is to say. So Yadidam Chattari Purisayugani Atapurisapugala means the four pairs of persons or the eight kinds of individuals. Now, this is basically two different ways of referring to the same thing. The four pairs refers to somebody who has attained the path of awakening, and the other sets of pairs, the other four pairs, are those who have realized the fruit of awakening. And because in the Buddhist tradition, the Theravada Buddhist tradition, there are four stages of awakening, it means somebody who has entered the path of the first stage and then realize the fruit. So that's two. And then another one has entered the path to the second stage and realized the fruit, and then entered the path to the third stage and realized the fruit, and entered the path to the fourth stage and realized the fruit. When they describe it as eight individuals, it marks exactly the same people. It describes exactly the same people. But instead of categorizing them as these sets of two, these pairs, they just categorize them individually. It's this reference that gives weight to applying the term of sangha to beings that have some degree of realization. Because this reference to the the four pairs or the eight individuals is definitely pointing to stages of awakening. It's not describing somebody who just sits down to meditate and thinks, I think I'm going to um, you know, do this for 20 minutes and see what happens. That's great, but it might be later in their practice that they actually sense where this practice is going and have done enough inner work to really be on that path with confirmed and clear confidence that has been developed through their own direct realization. Ahunayo, pahunayo, dakinayo, anjali, karaniyo means it's, it, this is a worthy of, worthy of, fit for, fit for gifts, fit for hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of salutation. So it's, a, it's describing that one who has really developed the mind is worthy of these things. It's something to be respected. And we know that. I mean, when you meet somebody who has done a lot of inner work, it's quite an amazing thing. When you meet somebody who can let go, who is not bound by greed, hate, and delusion, they're respectable. You know, they're somebody we might admire, we might look up to, we might want to support, we might want to give to them. We might sense that they do good in the world with whatever it is they have. It's a wonderful thing to meet somebody who has realized something of wisdom and of the way things are. Ahunai, ahuna literally means sacrifice. 
And this can be compared perhaps to the offerings that were given to the Brahmin's fire because it was believed that sacrifices would bear fruit. And this might be one of the many instances when the Buddha took a language or a teaching or a practice that was applied in the Vedic tradition or to the in the Brahmanical society and gave it a different twist. So he turned local and conventional practices and rituals around to use them within his structure that would lead to awakening. He spoke often against the kinds of sacrifices that the Brahmins frequently made, you know, attending the ritual fires, animal sacrifices. The Buddha spoke against those, saying that they did not bear fruit. He criticized the notion that the mind could be purified, that kama could be purified, that a being could be purified through austerity practices or through taking ritual baths or any kind of animal sacrifice. But he repeatedly taught, the Buddha repeatedly taught, that that purification comes by undertaking practices of virtue, of mental development, and of wisdom. So we develop wholesome practices and gain genuine attainments through our own direct insight. This was significant because there were so many things, other practices that were being explored at the time of the Buddha. And The Buddha took great pains to distinguish what he was teaching from some of the other teachings of his time. So one doesn't become enlightened because they meet a great master. One has to realize this for themselves. They might realize it through hearing the word of the master. They might realize it through meditation. They might realize it through inquiry through conversation, through reflection, through pondering. There are many ways of realizing the truth of things, but we must realize the truth for ourselves. This kind of awakening does not come. The experience of deep peace, the ending of greed, hate, and delusion doesn't come because we see a master in the distance and all of a sudden feel inspired. It doesn't come because we've taken a a vow you know, to do some austerity practice, and then all of a sudden we are saintly and pure. The purification that the Buddha taught was purifying the mind that are of, the, of the defilements that are rooted in greed, hate, and delusion. And to do that, we have to let go. We have to learn to let go of all kinds of attachments, of cravings, of distortions of view. And we have to practice recognizing when we're clinging, and let go. And experience the peace and the release that can come from letting go. And so sacrificing or sharing one's material possessions of food, of shelter, supporting the sangha, is a way that the lay practitioners at the time would connect with the ordained sangha. And through that mutual connection, that sense of virtue and sharing, there would be a support and an amplification of the purity. 
It was believed that giving gifts to somebody who had a greater realization, who would that that gift, the the purity of the gift, the um, merit of the gift, the potency of the gift would be amplified not only by the purity of the giver's intention, but also by the purity of the receiver's practice, the purity of the receiver's mind. And so giving to a sangha, giving to a community, supporting a community that was practicing a way that was right, practicing a way that was a pure, practicing a way that was inclined towards awakening, practicing a way that purified the, the, the virtue, purified the mind, and led to wisdom, was believed to be to create to be a great gift, and that that sangha was then a field of merit for the giver. So ahunaya refers to of being worthy of gifts, pahunaya worthy of hospitality, dakinaya uh, refers to the offering, something that's given out of faith that will bring benefit in the future. And Anjali refers to a gesture of respect, like you might be familiar with Anjali uh, referring to the, the gesture of the hands folded together in the, uh, as a kind of prayer or, or bow position, like uh, a gesture of respect. So when these are put together, we understand the community of practitioners to be a community worthy of gifts, worthy to receive the support, worthy to receive the requisites. Anuttaram punyaketam lokasati simply says an incomparable field of merit for the world. We don't often um, think about merit when we come to meditation practice in the West. I think most of us come more frequently not to gain merit but to reduce stress, (laughs) to improve the quality of our lives, to improve the quality of our minds. So we have to sometimes struggle a little bit to understand what is this traditional concept of merit? Because it certainly doesn't mean that there is a Santa Claus up in the sky that is keeping track of our good deeds and our bad deeds. So we're not going to like get a, uh, an accounting of all the good meritorious things that we did and they're counted against our demeritorious evil actions that we've done and we hope we come out positive at the end of the year. It doesn't, kind of, it doesn't really work that way. And yet there is something quite powerful about this concept of merit that I think is missed in the West because we resist this kind of accounting notion. Because I do think we accumulate a force of virtue through our actions. And we can build up a force of virtue through doing actions with our body, deeds, good deeds, compassionate deeds, generous deeds, virtuous deeds, keeping the ethical precepts. We build up a force of virtue that can be a great resource of strength for us. We can also build up a force of virtue through developing the mind, through meditation, 
And the three pillars of the Dharma are described as being the three bases of merit, which is acts of generosity, dana, keeping the ethical precepts, which is sila, virtue, and mental development, meditation, bhavana, that's the cultivation of concentration, the cultivation of mindfulness. You know, really practicing with the mind so that the mind itself becomes purified. And we can sense a momentum of purity developing, an actual force of strength in the mind that comes out of our practice. And partly that's a strength of self-respect that comes when we're generous, that comes when we're virtuous, that comes when we meditate. But that self-respect also, I think, is much broader than that and provides a place where we really can trust ourselves and be trustworthy in the world. There are several classic benefits that are described in the Visuddhimagga um, that come when we recollect the Sangha. And basically it says, on that occasion when one is recollecting the Sangha, One's mind is not obsessed by greed, or obsessed by hate, or obsessed by delusion. One's mind has rectitude on that occasion, being inspired by the Sangha. To have a recollection that at least temporarily frees the mind from greed, hate, and delusion, I think is kind of nice. So it at least temporarily eliminates the hindrances from our minds, the obstacles, and inspires happiness. So it's a way of abandoning the hindrances and cultivating the inspiring factors. The the recollection of of the Sangha can develop some of the factors that we call jhana factors, and I I gave a series on them only only a few months ago. You might remember that the five intensifying factors, also called jhana factors, include the directing of attention, the sustained attention, the joy, pleasure, and unification of mind. And these five factors are developed particularly strongly through these all the recollection practices. But this recollection of the Sangha and any of the recollection practices can develop the jhana factors and bring the mind up to the strength, basically what's called access concentration. But it isn't true access concentration because actually the recollection is not a suitable object for complete absorption. So it brings the mind up to the strength of the jhana factors that would be equivalent to access, but it actually doesn't, it isn't access to jhana because the nature of this object requires the quality of thinking. We have to keep thinking. We have to keep reflecting. We have to keep turning these concepts over in the mind that are elaborate enough concepts that it's not a simple enough object for the mind to be unified in a steady absorption. But nevertheless, it can bring tremendous steadiness, concentration, and joy to the mind. It can be used to energize our attention, to uplift and inspire the mind, to induce faith, and to encourage ourselves 
to encourage ourselves in wholesome actions, to encourage ourselves on the path, to overcome any momentary discouragement when we're trudging along thinking nothing is happening. I'm sitting here and I'm just accomplishing nothing. What's the point? We think about the Sangha and we remember and connect with a broader group of people that have been practicing this path for centuries and doing something each in our own way to improve the quality of mind. In one discourse to Mahanama, there is a teaching that goes through the value and the reasons for doing all these recollections. In particular, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha are the most common ones. And in relationship to Sangha, it says... Well, in relationship to each of them, it says, when a noble disciple recollects the Tathagata thus, oh, I think I may have, yes, I think I copied it down from the one from the Buddha, the recollection of the Buddha, but it's the same. When a noble disciple recollects whatever the one's recollecting, this would be the Sangha thus, on that occasion his mind is not obsessed by lust, hate, or delusion. So we saw that also previously. His mind is straight with the Sangha as its object. A noble disciple whose mind is straight gains the inspiration of the meaning. The inspiration of the Dhamma gains gladness connected with the Dhamma. When he is gladdened, rapture arises. For one uplifted by rapture, the body becomes calm. One calm in body feels happy. For one who is happy, the mind becomes concentrated. This is called a noble disciple who dwells evenly amidst an uneven generation, who dwells unafflicted amidst an afflicted generation, who has entered upon the stream of the Dhamma and develops the recollection of Sangha. So simply by using this recollection of community, this recollection of Sangha, We free the mind from those obstructive forces of greed, hate, and delusion, and then develop a sequence of conditions that include inspiration and gladness and rapture and happiness. Sounds pretty good, actually. And then develop a stability of mind and also a peace, an evenness, a state of unafflicted, which implies the letting go and peace of insight. There are more benefits. In the Visuddhimagga, it says, when a bhikkhu is devoted to this recollection of the community, he is respectful and deferential towards his community. Towards his community, he attains fullness of faith. He has much happiness and bliss. He conquers fear and dread. He is able to endure pain. He comes to feel as if he were living in the community's presence. And his body, when the recollection of the Sangha's special qualities dwell in it, becomes as worthy of veneration as an upasatha house where the community has met. His mind tends toward the attainment of the community's special qualities. When he encounters an opportunity for transgression, he has awareness of conscience and shame as vividly as if he were face to face with the community. And if he penetrates no higher, at least he is headed for a happy destination. I think this is interesting because, uh, okay, it, it sounds nice, happiness, bliss, conquer fear and dread, able to endure pain. But there's, he comes to feel as if he were living in the community's presence. 
And I think sometimes that's very powerful, especially when we spend some time meditating alone. Even when we're alone, if we recollect the Sangha, then we know that we are practicing in a community of other beings, whether we're in the same room with them or not. I think it's always most powerful to actually physically meditate with other people, to share the space together, to sit in silence together. I think that community coming together in a congregation is very powerful in and of itself. The commitment to leave the house, to drive here, to be here, that itself is a powerful action that we take and strengthens our commitment. So I think that's very valuable. But it's also valuable that when we're at home or when we can't come to the community, to recollect the community and to know that we are a part of something. And we can think of this as being all the beings that right now are meditating around the world, but we also can think of it as being a part of a lineage, a part of a practice, that we each have a part of this lineage that can be traced all the way back to the Buddha. I'd like to... Perhaps just chant this once together in Pali. Why not? And then I'll, uh, we can open it for some discussion and some questions. Why don't we do this call and response? I'll say it, and then you can say it back. Supatipano Bhagavato Savakasanko Oh, I should probably say that in Pali, when you see a C, it's a ch sound. And when you see a V, it's somewhere between a W and a V. And different people in Asia will pronounce it harder, more like a V, or softer, more like a W, depending on the dialect. Uchupatipano Bhagavato. Savakasanko. Naya Patipano Bhagavato Savakasanko Samichi Patipano Bhagavato Savakasanko Yadidam Chatari Purisayugani Atta Purisapugala Esa Bhagavato Savakasanko Ahunayo Pahunayo Dakinayo Anjali Karaniyo Anutaram Punyaketam Lokasati Just to close, since we're approaching nine o'clock, just take a moment for yourself to reflect on your own experience of sitting in community. Because this is a weird thing to do. 
You know, most people who go out at night don't go to a place where they sit in silence for most of the time. And where the teacher just says, feel the sensations of your breath. You know, most people will think that's boring. And maybe it was, but here it doesn't matter because if you're bored, you're just mindful of boredom. If you're excited, you're mindful of excited. If you're happy, you're mindful of happy. If you're sad, you're aware of sad. If there's pleasure, if there's pain. Here we make our decisions based on something more, something deeper, something more enduring and more profound than just those vicissitudes of pleasure and pain, of, of excitement or dullness. You know, we look long range. Where is this path leading? And value even the very subtle things of sitting together with some people that we might know their names, some people that over the years we might have actually come to call friends, might even rely on, might even have come to really care deeply and dearly about. And many times, especially if we're new to the community, we're just sort of sitting in a room with quiet people wondering who they are. (laughs) But nevertheless, I do think it's powerful to sit in community. Well, have a lovely week, and I look forward to seeing you next week for the next installment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org dot org slash donate.